Please join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we pray with thanks to you because we can gather freely as your people to think about your word. Please give us minds to understand what your word says. Please give us hearts willing to obey you no matter what the cost. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I was talking to a man in our church a while ago. He's a very serious Christian, a very committed Christian man. And, and I said to him, what is it that's helped you to be so, um, so earnest, so strong about your faith? And he said this, he said, I became a Christian when I was 25, but my family were really against it. His family are Buddhist. So for the first couple of years, he said, I was a secret Christian. I didn't tell anyone, didn't tell my mum and dad, didn't tell anyone. But then one day, my pastor, he asked me about baptism. And at that point, I had to make a call. I had to say to myself, is this real? Or am I just playing games? He said, I thought it through. I came to the conclusion that it is real. And so I realised that Jesus has to be number one and my family has to be number two. And so with the knowledge of my whole family, I got publicly baptised, even though they didn't want me to. Now, as it turned out, his family didn't take it as badly as he thought. But, but can you see what happened? Uh, when the pressure was on, when, when, the, when his faith was going to cost him something, when he had to actually put Jesus as number one, and that meant something else had to, be, had to be moved out of the way, that's when he had to get serious about it. That's when he had to make sure that that is what strengthened him in his faith. Another man told me his story recently. He had grown up in a Christian home, he believed in Jesus, but it didn't really impact on his life. Uh, but then he fell in love with a non-Christian girl. As he was about to get engaged to her, he started to think about it. He thought about the kind of relationship that they had, and he thought to himself, if I do this, this basically kisses goodbye to my living as a Christian. If I marry this girl, we are not going to live as Christians. And so he thought, well, I better make sure that there is nothing to my parents' Christianity. He investigated, read a couple of books, came to the conclusion that Christianity is true, spoke to his fiancée about it, she wanted no part of it, and so he broke up the relationship. Again, there was that point of pressure, the point where his faith was going to cost him something that's when he had to get serious. Now, it is easy, don't you think, to, to just kind of drift along as a Christian. You don't question it, you don't have serious doubts about it, but, but it doesn't really change anything either. You're not taking it that seriously. But then suddenly something comes up. You see that it's going to cost you. Maybe you face persecution. Maybe you are challenged to invest serious time in being a Christian. Maybe there's a relationship that you need to give up or a friendship that you need to break or something like that. Whatever it is, you recognise that if Jesus is going to be number one, that's going to cost you. And so it forces you to make a call. You need to be sure. Either it's real and you've got to get serious and pay the cost or else if it's not real, you've got to stop playing games. If it's not true, if it's not worth paying a cost for, well, it's not worth anything. As we come into chapter 32 of this book of Jeremiah, we see Jeremiah having to pay a massive cost for being a prophet of God. The year is 588 BC. King Zedekiah, the king of Judah, has rebelled against the emperor of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. 
In response, Nebuchadnezzar has brought his army, the biggest army in the known world at the time, and he has laid siege to Jerusalem, surrounded Jerusalem. And meanwhile, Jeremiah himself, he is in jail. He's in jail because he's prophesied that Nebuchadnezzar will win victory, that Jerusalem will be defeated, that Zedekiah will be handed over. Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 1. Have a look with me. Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, 588 BC. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Now, Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, Why do you prophesy as you do? You say? This is what the Lord says. I'm about to hand this city over to the king of Babylon and he will capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape out of the hands of the Babylonians, but will certainly be handed over to the king of Babylon and will speak with him face to face and see him with his own eyes. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, where he will remain until I deal with him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Babylonians, you will not succeed. So here's the situation. Let's get ourselves in the picture. Jerusalem and Judah, they're about to be destroyed. They're about to be conquered. All the land is going to be taken over by the Babylonians. The vast majority of people are going to be killed. The few survivors will be taken to exile for a lifetime, three generations. Jeremiah himself is in jail. He's in terrible danger. And it's at this point, with all of this background, into this scene, that God has a very strange request for Jeremiah. He asks him to invest in the local property market. Verse 6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Then, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, Buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it. Buy it for yourself. Jeremiah knows this is God's will. And so he does it, even though he knows Babylon is about to conquer the land, even though he knows he will never get to probably even see this land, let alone enjoy this land. Halfway through verse 8, I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. Fair price for the land. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed and weighed out the silver on the scales. No doubt, Hanamel pockets the money and heads off to a resort in Egypt or something like that far away. Uh, but, but what Jeremiah does, because he knows that the exile will last a long time, what he does, he gives the property documents to a witness and he asks him to store them away in pots. That's the way they used to preserve documents in those, in those days. For example, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered preserved in clay pots. So that they, he has to preserve the documents in clay pots so they'll last a long time. And, and then he gives God's reason why he's done all of this. It's because, he says, the Jews will return to their land. Property will once again be bought and sold. And these documents, they will testify that Jeremiah predicted it. That Jeremiah knew it all along. In fact... Jeremiah was willing to bet his house on God's promises. Judah will come back from exile. Verse 11. I took the deed of purchase 
the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions as well as the unsealed copy. And I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Marseah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, and of the witnesses who had signed the deed, and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. In their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar, so that they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. Well, that was an expensive exercise for Jeremiah. This is not the sort of financial advice that you'll read in the financial review or something like that. Go, buy property that's about to be conquered. No, 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 you won't see it there. And Jeremiah is a good Jewish boy. He knows the value of money. 17 shekels have been thrown away here for the sake of a prophecy. And so Jeremiah, what he does, he, he turns to God in prayer. And he starts off with, with a whole heap of praise to God. He says, God, you're so powerful. You made everything. You've shown your power in Israel's history. You brought us to the land. You're taking us out. You're the king. Verse 16 after I'd given the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show love to thousands, but bring the punishment for the father's sins into the laps of their children after them. Oh, great and powerful God, whose name is the Lord Almighty, great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. Your eyes are open to all the ways of men. You reward everyone according to his conduct and as his deeds deserve. You performed miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt and have continued them to this day, both in Israel and among all mankind, and have gained the renown that is yours still. You brought your people Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders and by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. You gave them, you gave them this land. You had sworn to give their forefathers a land flowing with milk and honey. They came in and took possession of it, but they did not obey you or follow your law. They did not do what you commanded them. So you brought all this disaster upon them. Jeremiah says, God, you are so powerful. You, you made everything. You can do everything. You're in total control of history, the good, the bad. But God says, Jeremiah, that was weird what you just made me do. Why would you make me buy property when we're about to be conquered by Babylon? Verse 24. See how the siege ramps are built up to take the city? Because of the sword, famine and plague, the city will be handed over to the Babylonians who are attacking it. What you said has happened, as you now see, and yet, though the city will be handed over to the Babylonians, you, O sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver and have the transaction witnessed. It's a strange thing to do. A costly thing to do. I'm sure all the, the Chinese people in the Chatswood congregation are with the Jews on this. It's a very wasteful thing to do to buy property that's going to be conquered. And so God answers Jeremiah. And time and time and time again over these next two chapters, God assures Jeremiah that everything he's prophesied will come true. He says, firstly, I will destroy Judah, verse 26. 
Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I'm about to hand this city over to the Babylonians and to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who will capture it. God says Babylon will have victory over Judah. And he goes, to, he goes on to give all the reasons why Judah have been idolatrous. They've been disobedient. Uh, jump with me to verse 30. It's summarized. Verse 30. The people of Israel and Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. Indeed, the people of Israel have done nothing but provoke me with what their hands have made, declares the Lord. From the day it was built until now, this city has so aroused my anger and wrath that I must remove it from my sight. Judah will be conquered, but that's not the end of the story not the end of the story because God says he's going to do something unique in human history the Jews will maintain their integrity as a race in exile and God will bring them back to the land and then God will change them as we've seen over these last few weeks change their hearts so that they will love him and will obey him and will be his people forever verse 36 are you are saying about this city By the sword, famine and plague, it will be handed over to the king of Babylon. But this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banish them in my furious anger and great wrath. I'll bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them and I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. Once again, God says, land will be bought and sold in Judah. Verse 43. Once more, fields will be bought in this land, of which you say it's a desolate waste without men or animals, for it's been handed over to the Babylonians. Fields will be bought for silver, and deeds will be signed, sealed, and witnessed in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah, and in the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills and of the Negev, because I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. And those documents will be the witness. Jeremiah knew it all along. Jeremiah was willing to bet his house on God's promises. But it's still a big thing to do. It's still a very, very costly exercise. And so in the next chapter, God, um, God reiterates his promise. Jeremiah's bet his house on the promises. He's obviously a little bit concerned about it. And so God gives the same promises again a second time. Chapter 33 and verse 1. Chapter 33 and verse 1. While Jeremiah was still confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him a second time. God says again, verses 2 to 5, Judah will be defeated and destroyed. But he says again, verses 6 to 14, that he will restore them. God then promises to raise up a righteous king from the line of David. Pick it up in verse 15, 15, 33, 15. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteousness. The kingship will be forever in the line of David. God also says the sacrificial system will last forever. There will always be a priest to offer sacrifice for Israel's sin. Verse 17. This is what the Lord says, verse 17. David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. 
nor will the priests who are Levites ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings and to present sacrifices. God repeats his promises to Jeremiah to make sure of it, but it's still not finished because God then goes on again and again and again to affirm that his promises are true, that they will come to fruition. Uh, Jeremiah has bet his house on it, and so again and again God assures him he will keep his promises. God says, it's as sure as day follows night. Have a look with me at verse 25. Verse 25. It's said in a way that's a little bit upside down, but see, see if you can follow this. Verse 25. This is what the Lord says. If I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed laws of heaven and earth, then I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant and will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Did you get that? If he has not made his covenant with day and night. If day and night cease, well then sure, God's promises will cease. But, but his promises are not going to cease as day and night is not going to cease. His promises are as sure as day follows night. I will restore their fortunes, he says at the end of verse 26, and have compassion on them. Okay. Well, can you see what's here in these chapters? Jerusalem under siege, surrounded about to be destroyed. Jeremiah is in jail for his prophesying and God asks him to buy a property. Jeremiah prays. He says, you are very powerful, God, but that was a strange thing to make me do. And so, over and over and over again, God reaffirms his promises. Judah will be conquered, but God will restore them. The Jews will come home. Land will once again be bought and sold. God will restore the kingship in the line of David. God will restore the priesthood forever. It's as sure as day and night. Yes, Jeremiah, it is costly, but it will come true. All right. It is costly for Jeremiah to be a prophet, isn't it? I mean, here he is, he's in jail. His, his life is in danger. And now he has to buy this house that he will never live in to show the, show the certainty of God's promise. A couple of weeks ago, I was, I was listening to some commentators on the radio. They were talking about uh, the rugby league game that happened a couple of losses ago uh, for the Eels, um, the rugby league game between the South Sydney Rabbitohs and the Parramatta Eels. Last year, the uh, Rabbitohs came first in the competition, the champion team. The Eels came somewhere way below them. Uh, and this year, up to that point, the, the point when the Rabbitohs played the Eels, the Rabbitohs had won every single game of the season and the Eels had lost more games than they had won. And so it came as a very, very big surprise to everybody except perhaps Warren Esdale and Aaron Tan when the Eels had a glorious victory over the Rabbitohs. Uh, but the thing I remember the commentator saying was this. He said, you know, he said, you know what? That's a terrible, terrible Australian accent, these commentators. You know what? I'd have bet my house on the Rabbitohs winning. I'd have bet my house on the Rabbitohs winning. It's a bit of a saying, isn't it? It's a bit of a saying. I'd bet my house on it. It's saying that you're so sure of it, so confident about it. I mean, you want to be very, very sure before you risk your house on something, wouldn't you? It's a way of saying you are certain that it's true. Well, that's what Jeremiah, that's what God's asking Jeremiah to do here, isn't it? God has promised to restore Israel to the land after the exile, and he's getting Jeremiah to, to, to stake his house on it. 
Well, no wonder Jeremiah raises the issue in prayer. And no wonder God has to assure him again and again and again, this was a costly decision. He needed to be very sure about it. But as we've seen over these last couple of weeks, Jeremiah's certainty was vindicated, wasn't it? We've seen it time and time again. God did keep the promises he made through Jeremiah one year. After this, 587 BC, what Jeremiah predicted came true. Jerusalem was conquered and destroyed. And then, for the first time in history, 48 years later, in 539 BC, God did bring the Jews back to the land of Judah. Land was, once again, bought and sold in Judah. Of course, that wasn't the end of the fulfilment of God's promises, was it? Because in further fulfilment, hundreds of years later, God sent Jesus to fulfill the promises that he'd made through Jeremiah. Jesus died to offer a once-for-all eternal sacrifice for our sins, and God raised him to life as an eternal priest to always intercede for us, just like God promised here in Jeremiah. There will always be a priest to present sacrifice. Jesus, of course, was in the line of King David. And when God raised him to life as the eternal king, again it fulfilled what Jeremiah prophesied, that God would give David an eternal dynasty. The risen Jesus has poured out his Holy Spirit to work in the hearts of his people, transforming us just as God promised in Jeremiah. God has fulfilled his promises through Jeremiah and the day will come when God's promises will finally be fulfilled. When Jesus will come back, when every knee will bow to him as king and when we will live in peace and safety and security as God's transformed people in the new Jerusalem, the ultimate promised land forever. Now friends, as I said last week, I know this is old news for most of us. Uh, you've probably heard this stuff about Jesus a thousand times. A thousand times you've probably been told that your, your true home is in heaven. Uh, Jesus is, is the eternal king and the eternal sacrifice. But, but the question Jeremiah leaves us with is this. If it came down to it, would you bet your house on it? Like Jeremiah had to. Would you bet your house on it? You see, some of us, we're sitting here this evening and we are playing games with God. Our so-called Christian faith, it makes no difference to our lives. It's like we're, it's like we're hedging our bets. It's like we're having an each-way bet. You know what an each-way bet is? When I was a kid, my, my grandfather used to have lots and lots of racehorses and so he used to spend many, many Saturdays at the race course and my, my grandfather would bet on horses at every race but my nan and I, we would put on an each-way bet. Each-way bet's beautiful. If the horse wins, you win. If the horse doesn't win, you still win. <laughs> a great kind of a bet. I think many of us, we've got an each-way bet on Jesus. Yes, we say, we believe in Jesus but just in case... We'll give a minimum of thought, a minimum of time, a minimum of effort, a minimum of money, a minimum of sacrifice for Jesus. And, and, and even though, yeah, sure, we've got our eggs in that basket, we will make sure that we miss out on nothing that this world has to offer because deep down we don't know if it's real or not. Friends, I don't think Jesus will let us get away with it. Jesus said... No one can serve two masters. 
Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Friends, can I, can I say this to you? Jesus will not accept an each-way bet. As long as you try to serve two masters, as long as you try to hedge your bets, you will never please either of the masters. As long as you hedge your bets, as long as it costs you nothing to be a Christian, you will never be pleasing to Jesus. Jesus demands to be number one priority in your life. And so there must come times when that will cost you, when you'll have to make a decision to put something else underneath Jesus, when God will call you to pay a price. And so there's the challenge. When it comes down to it, will you bet your house on Jesus? What's that going to mean for you? Well, maybe it means what it says. Now, that's what it meant for lots of people in the early church. The Bible says in the book of Acts that the early church had no needy people among them. Let me read to you from the book of Acts why. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Maybe that's what God wants you to do. Maybe when we hear about our brothers and sisters starving and dying in Malawi and we're called on to give uh, to a pres-aid appeal, I'm not complaining about $3,394, but I don't think anyone sold their house to give to our needy brothers and sisters. Maybe that's what God wants you to do. Sell your house. Give the money to needy Christians. Or maybe the cost that God is calling you to pay is not quite so radical. Maybe you need to, to start putting Jesus above your family. Maybe that needs you need to publicly stand up and be baptised. Let your friends and family know, I am a Christian whether you like it or not. Maybe you need to let the people at work know that you are a Christian and that that is number one for you. Maybe you need to end that friendship or that relationship which is leading you away from Christ. Maybe you need to start getting fed income about church. Stop being a fringe dweller. Stop being someone who, who puts Jesus as maybe number three or four or 16 priority. Come in from the fringe. Start spending a significant amount of your precious time in service to Jesus. Maybe you start, need to start giving money to support Christian ministry. Giving so that it hurts. Giving so that it shows that Jesus is number one. Whatever it is, the question is, are you willing to count the cost to put Jesus as number one priority? Are you willing to pay whatever price it takes to serve Jesus? Are you willing to bet your house on it? And friend, if you are not, if you are not sure whether Jesus is worth it, you need to make sure. Do the research. Think carefully about it. Because if this is real, then no price is too much to pay. But if it's not real, then we need to stop mucking around. Stop playing games. Friends, God's promises are real. Jesus is the eternal King and Saviour promised by Jeremiah. You can bet your house, you can bet your whole life on it. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the one who has offered the eternal sacrifice for our sins and now 
uh, is our priest who brings us into your presence. We thank you that you have raised him from the dead as our eternal king, and we thank you that you have prepared a true home for us. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us not to try to serve two masters, but to serve only Jesus as first priority in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.